Due to some technical difficulties, the introduction of this sermon was now recorded. The sermon for today is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 12 to chapter 2 verse 11. The sermon points are as given. 1. God's design we can't beat. 2. God's redemption that we can't rush. And 3. God's suffering that we must grasp. The recording starts after the first point has been given. We hope you enjoy the rest of the sermon. Down in chapter one, one verses one to eleven, he mentions Solomon in third person. Right? Uh, these are the words of the preacher. The preacher said this. But now, all of a sudden, chapter one, verse twelve, the narrator switches to describing Solomon in the first person. I, the preacher, he's impersonating Solomon here. Why? To make sure that the reader knows this pursuit of happiness was first-hand research done by Solomon himself. Solomon wasn't a professor trying to gather external data from test subjects, no. Yes, he was the professor, but he was also the test subject. And the data that he gathered were experiences in his own heart. If I do this, how does my heart feel? If I do that, how does my heart feel now? It's first-hand research. Verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. A few things to note there. To seek and search has to be distinguished. To seek is referring more to the breadth of categories that he wants to explore. Okay? To search is to go deep, as deep as you can get to the bottom of each category. Does that make sense? I'll get back to that later said, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom. Wisdom in this part of the book is described as an awareness to how his heart feels during the experiences that he threw himself to. So, for example, a category he was seeking, one of the categories is alcohol, right? And once he found that category, he really searched into that category, meaning he didn't just drink, he drunk like there's no tomorrow. But yet, he still applied wisdom. He kept mental notes of how his heart felt through every stage of drunkenness. First drink, I'm feeling okay. Second drink, okay, I'm getting a bit numb. My tongue's feeling a bit numb. How's my heart feeling now? Am I happy? One more shot. Ooh, things are a bit blurry. How's my heart now? Is it happy? One more shot. Is everyone talking softer or am I just getting louder? I can't tell. Oh well, let's finish this bottle. How's my heart feeling now? Am I happy? Am I happy? He he seek, he sought categories and he searched every single one to the depth. By wisdom, I sought every category and searched every one of them to its deepest core. And I took mental notes of every emotion that my heart experienced, hoping to find the secret to long-lasting happiness under the sun. And verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, all is vain and striving after the wind. In other words, I've looked everywhere. I've searched everything. And here's a conclusion. There is no container airtight enough under the sun that is able to contain this thing we call happiness. (coughs) Let me repeat that. There is no container airtight enough under the sun that is able to contain this thing we call happiness. See, the more elusive something is, the tighter and more intricate your container needs to be in order to keep that thing in. 
to contain rice, for example. All you need is a paper bag. Often, uh, it's not very intricate or airtight, but it gets the job done because you're just trying to contain rice. But if you're trying to contain water, right, it's more elusive than rice. A paper bag won't do. You need something more intricate and airtight, like a plastic bag or a metal water bottle, right? Now, to contain air or gas, you need something more intricate, more airtight, right? Uh, uh, something that can contain this elusive thing that is gas. But how do you contain wind? Solomon says. That's what trying to contain happiness is like. It, happiness is much more elusive than air. Imagine a man running after rushing wind. I have a better life now. I have more money now. I got those abs now. Surely, surely the version of my life now and the version of who I am now, that's going to be able to contain happiness. So this person runs and runs and chases after the wind, thinking that who they are is a container capable to contain happiness, only to realize that the very idea of containing wind is absurd, no matter how intricate or how amazing your life may be. Single people think marriage is a solution. You know what my counseling consists of? It consists of people who are unhappy in their singleness and people who are unhappy in their marriages. That's all my counseling is. <laughs> Single people chase after that boy and girl thinking a married version of me, that's the airtight container that's finally going to be able to contain happiness, right? Only to find themselves afterwards fantasizing about what being married to this other person might feel like. Don't lie. And how good life was when they were single. All that freedom. And then some people get divorced only to get remarried again. I'm not, I'm not saying singleness and marriage is bad. Singleness is good. Marriage is good. What's bad is thinking that either version of your life is going to contain happiness long term. It won't. Whatever version of life you have in mind, whatever version of yourself you have in mind, Solomon says, I've been there. I've done that. That container doesn't exist. Verse 16. I've tried to be really wise, wiser than anyone before me. In other words, remember, wisdom is not just about IQ, okay? It's also about EQ, emotional, okay? Solomon is now an expert of how his heart feels in every situation. Very high cognitive intelligence and also very high emotional intelligence. It doesn't matter, he says. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge also increases in sorrow. <coughs> just think about it. The counselor who has a high EQ gets sad and depressed just like their clients do. The version of yourself with high EQ might help, but it cannot contain happiness. The doctor who has high IQ gets sick and dies like their patients do. The investor with all that money feels anxiety and fear in life just like the people who are asking for that investment does. Even the pastor, who knows the word of God deeply, feels insecurity and feels down every now and then, just like their members do. The one whose degrees and certificates line their walls cries tears, just like the blue-collar layman does. Having high IQ or EQ or lots of money or whatever is not the key. There is no magic container for happiness under the sun. So, here's the answer, right? One might think, just don't pursue it. 
just don't go after it. Just don't pursue happiness. Don't want it. Don't chase it. Don't care about it. Have this monk-ish attitude. Verse 17, that's what he does. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. If wisdom is knowing how you feel during a given situation in this part of the book, mad folly is the opposite. Just don't think about it. Shut down. Don't try and figure it out. Don't think about it. Don't care because you're going to be disappointed. Maybe not caring and not seeking it out is the secret to happiness. That won't work either. See, humans will always seek happiness, even in the most foolish acts. Let me read a quote by Blaise Pascal, a French Christian theologian who is also a great mathematician and physicist. Good books he's written if you ever want to read them out there. Now, to warn you, it's a pretty raw and bleak quote. Okay, He said this, All men seek happiness. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, to be happy. This is motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. The one who just gives up and decides to no longer pursue happiness because they don't want to experience the disappointment of never finding it is in a twisted way trying to be happy by avoiding disappointment. You see, at the end, it's still a pursuit of happiness. So, summary. One, it's impossible to not want happiness. We all look for it, even those who no longer do. Two, you might feel happy, like you feel the wind blow by you every now and then, but like the wind, it's impossible to contain long-term under the sun. Now, here's the most disturbing part, as if it is not disturbing yet, okay? Here's the most disturbing part, not the part that we have a desire for happiness that can never be satisfied under the sun, but go back to verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Here's the most disturbing part. This unhappy business, some translations say, I think more accurately, this evil business is God's doing. You've got to read verse 15 in context of verse 13. Verse 15, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. After he said, this is God's doing. God has given man this unhappy business by creating us with the need for happiness, but then placing us in a crooked and lacking world where a container for happiness is nowhere to be found. We might want to say, but, but that's our fault, right? God originally created the world perfect in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, right? But it's our fault. We sinned, Adam ate the fruit, we all disobeyed God, and now we're in this broken world. That's our doing, right? It's not God's fault, it's ours. Yes, that's absolutely true. It's our fault and it's our sin. But why did God place the fruit there in the first place? Why even create the possibility for sin to enter and create such a crooked and lacking world? The Bible doesn't let God off the hook, you see. Solomon says it in our call to worship last week. Let me just remind you what it was. Psalm 90, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. 
and for as many years as we have seen evil. You have afflicted us with this. Romans 8, 19 to 20. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. This is God's doing. In order to cultivate a robust foundation of joy that reaches deep into your heart and extends high beyond the sun, you must first be brought into this real world and admit two very gloomy realities. One, the majority of life under the sun will consist more of enduring suffering rather than peaceful joy. You try and you try and you try to catch happiness and it'll continue to slip away. The happiness of freedom and singleness is always coupled with loneliness. The happiness of companionship in marriage is always coupled with conflicts. The success of career is always coupled with tiredness and often enemies, depending how high you go. The security of money is often accompanied by boredom. The future joy of possibly having kids is often accompanied with the fear and anxiety of failing as a parent. There is no version of life or yourself under the sun that can ever contain happiness long-term and fully keep sadness out long-term. That's one. Two, you have to accept that God designed it that way for now. And he's not apologetic about it. He's not apologetic about it. Why? Because he has a plan. He has a plan. And we can't rush it. Which brings us to our second point. We can't rush God's redemption. <coughs> Solomon, still trying to prove his own thesis wrong, takes a shortcut to happiness, right? If wisdom doesn't work, if mad folly doesn't work, so, chapter 12, verse 1, I'm going to try and take the shortest road there, and that's called immediate pleasure. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And the first subcategory under this general category of pleasure is comedy clubs. Surely, surely if anything can contain happiness, verse 2, it's laughter. What if I just laugh all the time? Surely I'll search the category of comedy deep enough and I'll find the container of happiness there. But at the end he says, no, it's just mad. So Tati listens to this really interesting podcast. I feel like every good sermon analogy I get from her podcast or from kid shows. Uh, Tati listens to this really interesting podcast and it's called The Hilarious World of Depression. The Hilarious World of Depression. And the premise of the podcast is that behind every funny comedian, usually, for the most part, lies a very depressed person or a very depressing uh, story uh, that somebody has gone through. That's all they do. They interview comedians, and these comedians share about how hard their life has actually been and how that hardship produces humor. It's interesting to think about what comedy is. Think about the majority of the topics that we all love to laugh about. The topics of themselves are actually very sad topics. Think about Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock. We know Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock, right? They're hilarious, right? We, we laugh at their jokes, but think about it. What are the majority topics that they laugh about? Racism. It's funny, it's presented in a hilarious way, but the topic itself is actually a very sad one. Today, many same-sex attracted comedians are popping up, and what do they mostly joke about? What do they turn into comedy? The ridicule and the hardships and the judgment that they experience when they came out. 
It's presented in a funny way and people laugh, but the topic itself, it's a very disturbing and sad topic all around. Political comedians. Trevor Noah, who replaced Jon Stewart. I don't know if you guys follow The Daily Show. I love it. They're both hilarious. But what are most of the topics about? Very upsetting and sad political issues. The topics itself are actually sad. Recently, last one, I've, I've watched uh, Hassan Minaj. I think that's how you pronounce it. He's an Indian comedian. Uh, his parents were immigrants and went to the U.S. He was born there, and the stuff he says is absolutely hilarious. But a lot of his jokes are actually about the hardships of immigrants assimilating to the United States. It's funny, but the topics in itself are actually sad topics that are made into comedy because we just can't take them. We need to laugh about them. Solomon went to all the comedy shows, he observed it, he studied it, and he concluded, comedy can't contain happiness. It can't. For the most part, it suppresses and distracts us from the sad realities of life, but it can't contain it. How about wine? Verse 3, same thing. Booze doesn't contain happiness. It just suppresses and distracts and avoids the pain we feel. Comedy and booze and everything under the category of immediate pleasure, for the most part, are not containers of happiness, but suppressors of pain. Now, okay, we get the general point, right? And I think Solomon knows that. So what he does in the next few verses is he skips the main point. In verses 4 to 8, he gets the heart issue. says this, When we spend our lives trying to avoid pain, when we spend our lives trying to find something on earth to contain happiness and avoid pain forever, long term, essentially what we're doing is we're rushing God's redemptive plan. Solomon confessed that actually his research in this is actually what he's trying to do. He's trying to rush God's redemptive plan. He's trying to recreate heaven on earth on his own timing, and that's futile. That won't work. Look at chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. Take a closer look at the description of Solomon's building project. Okay, He builds all this stuff, and you'll find that how he describes it sounds awfully close to the description of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. Okay, let me, I put the verses up here so it's clearer. Read verses, chapter two, verses four to five. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. Now listen to Genesis two, verse eight. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Continue verse five in your printouts. And planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Now listen to Genesis chapter two, verse nine. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Sound close? Not convinced? Let's continue. Verse six. I made myself pools from which the water to water the forest of growing trees. Listen to Genesis two, verse 10. A river flowed out of the garden to water the garden. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house to, to work it, right? Genesis 2.15, the Lord God and, uh, and, and put him, Adam, in the garden of Eden to work it. Continue in verse 7, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks. Genesis 2.19, now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of the kings and provinces. Genesis 2, verse 11 to 12, there was gold and the gold was good in the land. What Solomon is saying is this, look, we spend our lives trying to find this container intricate enough to contain happiness and keep sadness out. That's what we spend our lives doing. Through wisdom, through mad folly, through immediate pleasures like comedy and wine, accomplishments in our career, what are we essentially trying to do? We're trying to make this crooked and lacking world into heaven, and that's not going to work. 
As long as God is still subjecting creation to its time of groaning under the sun, we will never be able to find a version of our lives or ourselves that is always happy and never sad. It's not going to work. You can't rush God's redemption. So, instead of living your life trying to avoid pain and contain happiness, what you need to start doing is start living your life with the assumption that the suffer is inevitable. This is how Solomon does his intervention here. I'll get to the good part in point three, but persevere with me here, okay? This is so healthy. This is so healthy. Your pursuit to find constant happiness under the sun is futile. While under the sun, accept the fact that the majority of life will not be blissful rest, but enduring suffering. That's the real world. Are you ready to accept it? With all my wisdom, all my mad foolishness, all my work, all my drinking, I've tried to recreate heaven on earth. To top it off, verse 8, I hired personal bands and had lots and lots of sex. I've tried. It doesn't work. None of those things can contain happiness. You think you can do more extensive research than me? I have more resources than you. My resources laugh at yours, verse 9. I didn't hold back at all, verse 10. And it was all a waste, verse 11, striving after the wind. You cannot beat God's current design that happiness under the sun will never stay long-term. You can't rush God's redemption. You can't make this end just yet. So what do you do? Expect suffering. Now, a lot of people think, okay, this worldview is going to make me defeated and depressed, right? This kind of worldview is going to create defeated and depressed people. No, I think the opposite is true. The opposite is true. Once we accept the fact that life under the sun is filled more with enduring suffering rather than blissful rest, one, you won't walk around life with a deserving mentality. You won't walk around life with a deserving mentality. If you expect suffering, when suffering comes, you won't be surprised. You're not going to walk around life disappointed and shocked every time suffering comes, two. If you're not shocked at the presence of pain, Every time suffering comes, you have a better chance of obeying God during it. If you're not shocked, every time suffering comes, you have a better chance of obeying God during it. When suffering comes, rather than being surprised and frantically asking, oh, how do I get out of this? You can instead ask, what does God want me to do with it? Someone who expects suffering has more of a chance to be a dependent child of God during it rather than an independent, rebellious agent in their attempt to flee it. Let me repeat that. Someone who expects suffering has a better chance to be a dependent child of God during it, rather than an independent, rebellious agent in their attempt to flee it. Three, you be a much more empathetic person. Unfortunately, the church has often oversimplified the equation of life. We think, as long as I obey God, I'll be happy. This worldview really, really, really hurts other people. You, many, you know how many times people have gone burned by the church? Because when something bad happens, the first thing Christians ask is, oh, God must not be happy with you. Like Job's friends, right? Those miserable comforters who administer guilt when they should have been applying a soothing balm. Job lost a child. Well, surely he did something wrong to upset God. Job got sick. Surely you didn't have enough faith. Job lost all his possessions. Surely you were disobedient at some point. And God rebuked them all at the end. 
you miserable comforters. Those aren't the reasons. Your ailments cannot always be related to a specific sin. Four, you won't grow to be a cynical person. Look, if you expect that good people never get cancer, you're going to be the most cynical person alive. Because guess what? They do. Perhaps you might even start to doubt God. Do you even exist? Why is this really, really good churched person experiencing suffering? Why am I experiencing suffering? Have I not been good enough? Fifth, lastly, there's much more. I'll stop at five. You'd be a great gospel witness. You'd be, if you expect suffering, you'll be a great gospel witness. The reason why I think the church has, for the most part, lost its power as a gospel witness is because we're too busy trying to make this crooked world our home rather than living as sojourners in a foreign land, pointing others to our true home. We must live life that way. I'm going to stop trying to make this world my home. This is not my home. The reason why we've lost that power is because the church is too busy trying to make this world our home. That's what the prosperity gospel does. We're trying to make this world the best life now. It's not. And it won't be. So, if you expect that, the, that most of life is crooked and, and, and lacking in this world, if you expect that most of life is actually about enduring suffering rather than expecting blissful rest, far from turning you into a sad and depressed person, you'll actually be a mature and wise person who doesn't walk around life with a deserving mentality, who's able to obey God during suffering because you're not so surprised by them, who's empathetic to the suffering of others, who does not become more cynical at every experience of suffering, and who can point others to heaven as we sojourn through these foreign lands. Stop trying to make this earth your home, Solomon says. It doesn't work. You'll remain immature and foolish, and you'll grow cynical. Expect that life under the sun is for the most part crooked and lacking. You'll be mature and wise. But here's the good part. This worldview in itself, okay, accepting this worldview in itself does not produce maturity and wisdom. Just, just knowing that life is going to be, for the most part, enduring suffering, that alone won't produce maturity and wisdom. It might actually produce depression. There's one ingredient absolutely necessary in order to turn this worldview into maturity and wisdom. Without this ingredient, you're right. This way of thinking will leave you sad and depressed. Last point. God's suffering that we must grasp. If you think God has subjected you into a cruel world without a purpose, that this worldview is utter hopelessness and despair, okay? Because it's just pointless suffering without a purpose. But then you look at the cross. You look at the cross and you realize that suffering under the sun, what he went through, suffering under the sun is the very thing that turned your knowledge of God's love from a whisper into a roar. You look at the cross and you realize it's not pointless. Suffering under the sun, his suffering, turned my understanding of God's love from a whisper into a roar. It is not pointless. What is the cross? What is the cross if not the very act that proclaims to the world God's love and mercy and justice and wrath and humility and greatness and glory? 
Now, don't get me wrong. God is love and merciful and just and great and glorious even without the cross, right? Even without sin or suffering under the sun. He doesn't need suffering under the sun in order to be those things. But without sin, there would have been no need for the cross. And without the cross, we would not have known the breadth and length and height and depth of the love and mercy and the humility of God as we do in Christ Jesus. For upon it, God died for our sins, that we may, through his suffering, acknowledge his attributes and worship him for eternity. Here's what the cross proves to us. There is always reason for suffering. Always reason for every tear. It will somehow end up pronouncing his glory and yielding our good. You know, he studied Job after he experienced the suffering. He lost all his wealth, all his ten children, and eventually his health. He still had poise and integrity, right? Even after his wife threw in the towel, said, just curse God and die. Which, by the way, if I was in her position, I don't know if I would act any differently. Yet Job answered, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? But then Job's lament grew darker. He turned to cursing the day he was ever born. And then, like most of us, he asked the famous question, Why? Why? Job 3, 20, 21. Why is light given to him who is in misery? Why am I still alive? And life to the bitter in soul, How, who long for death, but it comes not Chapter 3, verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Why? Why is this happening to me? Now, it's not wrong to ask why. Even Jesus himself, who knew exactly why he's dying on the cross, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look, here's a point. In every instance of suffering, even if you have a good theological basis for your suffering, there will always be mystery. There will always be mystery. You may know that every suffering under the sun will end up pronouncing God's glory and yield your good, but you won't exactly know the one-to-one correlation of how. A sense of mystery will always accompany misery. A sense of mystery will always accompany misery. Then God answers Job, who questions God. Verse 2, he doesn't give an explanation. He does this. Who is this? to Job and his friends. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then after that, he goes on explaining the things that God knows. And he explains all the things that God can do. And God continues to explain all the access to information that he has that Job doesn't. And that God explains all the things that he has done and all the great wonders that he will do. And then he tells Job, Job, there are some things you will not understand, for you are not God. You are not God. Instead of spending your life trying to claim my rights and question my sovereign will, spend your life worshiping and trusting me instead. Instead of spending your life trying to claim my rights and question my sovereign will, spend your life worshiping and trusting me instead. But you'll never do that. Your heart, trust me, your heart will never do that unless you understand the cross where God suffered and died for your sins. Your heart will always be suspicious of him if you don't see the proof of how he has on the cross and can use suffering to pronounce his glory and yield our good. 
God did not subject this world into a groaning state of crooked lack pointlessly, just like he didn't throw himself into the groaning of the cross pointlessly. There's always a point, although we may not know the exact correlation now. So here's the intervention Solomon does for us this time. Stop trying to live your life to find that container that's airtight enough to contain happiness and keep pain out. That container doesn't exist. Living your life for that goal is futile. Why? Because you can't break God's current design. For now, for now, he has subjected the children of man to this unhappy business in a crooked and lacking world. So instead of trying to avoid suffering at all costs, expect it. Don't try and rush heaven unto earth. Expect that most of life is enduring suffering rather than blissful rest. You'll be much wiser, mature, worshipful, and empathetic as a result. One day, one day will come a time of blissful rest. Heaven will come down to earth, and all the pains and sufferings under the sun will be answered for. No drop of tear is pointless, just like no drop of Jesus' blood was pointless. So for now, rather than trying to claim the rights of God and question his sovereign will, spend your life trusting and worshiping him instead, even when mystery accompanies misery. Let me end the sermon with an evangelistic note. Look, if you don't believe in the cross, you don't have any reason to think that God can and will redeem and use every tear. You might could speculate that he might do it, but that's as far as you can go. Because if the cross is not true to you, the mystery behind your miseries will be unbearable. But if the work of God on the cross is real to you, it's not just a fantasy, it's not just a fable that somebody made up. If it's real, that God really did pursue you into this crooked and broken world and was a part of it, written himself into it, and took on the worst and most unjust form of suffering for our sins, then now you have proof. You have proof that suffering under the sun is not pointless, just like the cross and the suffering of Christ was not pointless. It will somehow end up for his glory and our good. Solomon isn't saying make your life about pursuing suffering. No, don't pursue suffering. Of course not. What he's saying is stop making your whole life all about avoiding it. You can't avoid it, not under the sun. So while under the sun, look to the cross, Paul says in the New Testament. Trust him, worship him, and know that just like the cross, your suffering is not in vain. Worship him and trust him. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. The other gods were strong, but thou became weak. They rode on horses, thou stumbled to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. In the darkest night of the soul, D.A. Carson wrote in his book on suffering, Christians have, a, have something to hang on to that Job never knew. We know Christ crucified. Hang on to that. For through his death we are saved. It pronounced his glory and it yielded our good. So look unto the cross, Christian. 
Stop trying to make the single purpose of your life about avoiding pain and suffering. You can't rush heaven into earth. This is not your home, but instead expect suffering and let the wounds of God give you the hope you need. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for wanting to create our own redemptive story, for wanting to rush your timing and make all this go away before you have deemed it right for it to be gone. Let us be content as creatures and not act as God as if we can recreate heaven unto earth in our own time, but submit unto your sovereign will and purpose as we hang on to the cross and see the proof that none of our tears and none of this sadness is pointless and justice will come. And no more misunderstanding will take place and things will be clear, as clear as it can get. And we will feast with you. Not because we're any better, not because we deserve to be with you, but because Christ has thrown himself into the suffering of this world and now, as if a lamb that is slain, welcomes us with his nailed-shaped hands and embraces us and says, I love you. Do you see the point of it now? Let us trust in that and obey you through the suffering instead of frantically trying to avoid it every time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.